This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we've got two great guests, Amolik Badesha from Orbital Composites is here along with Cole Nielsen. So Amolik is the CEO and Cole is the founder and CTO. So really fascinating conversation. Uh, Orbital Composites is doing some really interesting things in the wind industry and others. Alan, what were some of your takeaways from the uh, the conversation today? Well, Orbital Composites is bringing a, a really a new concept in composite technology in the 3D printing area where they can print continuous fiber. Now that, that's a, a significant difference than the, the tape placement and the, or the hand layup that we are currently doing on a lot of wind turbine blades. So they can fiber place bundles and impregnate them with a resin or a thermoplastic as those fibers are being laid down into a, a composite part, which is a revolutionary uh, new approach to making wind turbines, which just opens up all kinds of possibilities in terms of cost savings, uh, aerodynamics, uh, structural design. It's just a, a really a new useful tool in our toolbox of how to make composite wind parts. Yeah, I mean, their their vision's really big, obviously, one of which is to have sort of micro factories that they can drop uh, at a wind turbine site, print the blades on site, eliminate a lot of the logistical problems, the transport problems. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's definitely the somewhere that all these industries are going, like on-site mobile construction, as we talked with uh, the, C, or the, the founder of uh, Cobod, which does uh, concrete 3D printing. They're doing a very, very similar thing, but obviously with composites, this is also a really complex industry. I mean, I don't know nearly as much about composites as you do. You know, you've been in the aerospace industry, um, you know, your whole life. Why is composite, uh, why is composite technology need to change and, and why is 3D printing potentially so disruptive to that industry? Well, the benefit of composites, you can apply strength where you need it and eliminate weight and cost where you don't. And if the, the issue has been is that in order to use composites, you kind of got all this extra uh, pieces to it, which are it's some t- the way we have to apply it and use it now is sort of inefficient. So we, we love the composites technology. We don't like other things that come with it, like autoclaves, uh, the freezers for thermosets, uh, uh, just all the infrastructure pieces around it. 3D printing eliminates most of those and brings the, the, the efficiency of composites to its maximum. So you can print fiber where you want fiber and don't print it where you don't need it. And that would have all the extra infrastructure pieces that go along with it. So it really drives down the overall cost of manufacturing and, and can decrease the weight and complexity of parts, which is where we want to go. So the ultimate useful 
pieces of composites can be brought to its maximum. That's what 3D printing does. Yeah, so uh, again, Amolik is the CEO. He's got a, a really interesting background. He's an investor. He's also an advisor uh, for RoboWind. Um, and Cole is just, uh, as you'll hear in the show, just such a diverse background in, in aerospace, in composites, uh, in, in 3D printing. Like He's got his hands in everything. Um, both of them just really brilliant minds. So it was a really exciting conversation today. Um, just from, from them and just, you know, again, getting a, a glimpse into the future of what wind energy could be. So without further ado, we're going to take you to our conversation today with the guys from Orbital Composites, Amolak Badesha and Cole Nielsen. And we are here joined by Amolak Badesha and Cole Nielsen from Orbital Composites. How are you guys doing? Oh, pretty good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, appreciate you guys coming on the show. So to give our, our listeners in podcast land, if they're not listening on video or watching on video, uh, a chance to kind of differentiate you guys and, and get started on the right foot. Um, Amalek, let's start with you. So as CEO of Orbital Composites, um, what are you focused on right now? And can you give us a little bit about uh, your background? Uh, sure. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Samolik Patesha, uh, CEO at Orbital Composites. And uh, I actually came into Orbital, uh, Cole and I, our kids go to the same school, and that's how we met. Uh, one crazy guy talking to another crazy guy, and boom, you know, you have a, <laughs> you have a team. Uh, so, uh, my background is actually in the semiconductor industry, and uh, I've done many different roles uh, uh, at uh, uh, Broadcom, which is a well-known semiconductor company. And, uh, you know, I joined Orbital because Cole, uh, uh, who's the, the, the crazy scientist and the founder and really the visionary of the company. And it's just the, the vision of the company has been just, just, just struck me from day one is that, okay, there's something special going on here and I want to be part of it, right? And then spent a lot of time learning about uh, what are our long-term goals. So as uh, in my role, you know, my primarily focus is really taking this fundamental robotic 3D printing technology uh, and find some super compelling applications uh, where we can apply this and really uh, have a very large impact and we're fortunate that we have, we can have that kind of impact in multiple industri industries. Uh, but we focused on wind uh, kind of by accident. Initially, we had a customer that reached out, one of the bigger ones uh, who needed, uh, who wanted to you know, get into the whole 3D printing thing. And uh, that prompted us to really dig very deep into the industry itself. Uh, and that was the journey where we started on back in 2017 and uh, uh, and now we're at a point where you know we're really getting ready to start some really incredible scale-up demonstrations coming up uh, where we can show how we can print these very large turbine blades and completely change the economics of uh, of how it's done so our goal is you know 25 percent cost reduction recyclable blades uh, on-site manufacturing. Yeah, those are, I mean, three huge ones because we talked about a bunch with a lot of different guests on our show and just in general that 
it's just really expensive to get these wind farms up and running. So Cole, let's, let's hop to you. So as the CTO and, and co-founder uh, or founder of the company, um, tell us about your background. Cause, uh, like, uh, Omolik said, you've come a long way as far as, you know, where the company was at, at the beginning and, and developing technology. And I know you've iterated a lot of, you know, a lot over the, the, the journey to this, to this point. So, um, tell us about you and, and, and what's led you here. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Cole Nielsen, um, I'm educated as a uh, spacecraft physicist. So if you want to think about mission design and, you know, that means orbits, that means the magnetic field of Jupiter, that, you know, how do you build sensor uh, payloads for that? But how do you plan the mission as well? So that's some of it. And the other half is uh, computational math, building calculators and lots of visualization to go with it. And, and kind of I've also always worked in IT. So you put all with all these things together and, you know, we can use computers uh, and new kinds of math to, to solve different problems. Um, so so initially, then, when I wanted to start a company, um, I looked at uh, wanting to build very fast helicopters and really kind of the conclusion I came to after studying how these things could be built and, and where the limitations are. What we ended up finding out was that, you know, you have automated fiber placement. That's these super big robots, potentially 120 feet long. And they're going to lay down these very high quality, perfect, you know, uh, tapes um, of carbon fiber. And those machines, they don't get very small, however. Right. And then you look at 3D printing. Um, 3D printing can make small things very well. Lots of curves lots of open cell foam architectures, low density meshes, things that the fiber placement stuff just can't do, except the fiber placement stuff is incredibly strong and 3D printing is anything but, but the shape is right. So it seemed to us that right in the middle of size and overlapping the benefits of both, there should be a new technology available. So, so that's kind of why we decided to build a nozzle inside of a nozzle put carbon fiber in the middle, and just the same way that you insulate wire, we could go ahead and uh, use the insulation to glue the threads together. So now you have carbon fiber and 3D printing completely merged, and the size of the robot you pick puts you at which length scale you're going to choose. So then in this, this part, we developed these tools. We started installing them on different robots around the world in these different research labs uh, for different industries. And one of the things we found uh, was that uh, robots are really challenging to deal with, like incredibly challenging. And, and what's going on there is that you have uh, a bottom-up um, embedded computer or embedded device method, right, where you say, okay, I've got this PLC, and the PLC is going to control the switches and the knobs, and we're going to run everything at 24 volts. And, you know, every single time you want to build something new, you have to, you know, cut this piece of wire and stick it into the computer and do all this stuff. Well, you know, when you when you really look at what a car factory is today, it's a collection of robots that are scattered in a production line. They're basically treated like small teams of people that build an assembly and then they go to the next station. That's very different than being able to have all thousand or two thousand robots in a single factory operating as one machine. There's a big difference there. But coming from the IT background, and you, you look at the evolution of the internet, 
So let's say a hard drive dies at you know youtube.com. Your video doesn't disappear from the internet. Why not? What's going on? What is the cloud? And so what we what we've done is we've fundamentally taken uh, industrial manufacturing robots, given them uh, new calculators to do motion planning and so on. But those individual devices are now cloud devices, cloud robots, which means that we can start to add more an unlimited number of robots to a single system. And from there, we can have, you know, hundreds of robots potentially printing onto uh, the same wind turbine, wind turbine blade at one time. So, you know, in, in the process of going through all this, after we invented the first tool, I was really struck with the notion, hey, you know, you're, you're starting to produce between carbon fiber, copper wire, and some kind of plastic, you're looking at producing the majority of, uh, of an aerospace system of either a satellite or a drone. Now, if that's the case, maybe if you have five, 10 tools in a single box, you could do the whole thing. Well, if you could do the whole thing in a single box, you could move the box. So you got to the, the, this, the point where you're, where, which is where I want to go now, which is what is orbital composites vision so it's everything contained in a essentially a containerized portable factory is that right where now we can plop this down in the mountainside where we're going to have a wind farm site and we can print a blade from start to finish right there eliminating a lot of logistical problems and all that um a is that right and b can you take me and obviously like our listener base you know varies we have some super um, tech savvy folks. And we have some people like I would say I'm the most layman person in this conversation right now. Um, so take me through the, 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 the flyby, the overview of what it is you guys are trying to do and taking that high level, um, it and, and engineering background and making it into a, you know, a, a viable product for the wind industry. Sure. Uh, I, I think there's, there's kind of two, two answers to this. There's the, you know, the guiding light, the, the, the North star, if you will, of where we're trying to push the technology. Ultimately, that's Mars. You know, if you really think about it, you're not going to go over there with a, a truckload of styrofoam cups and then throw them out the airlock when you're done. No, you're going to recycle. Americans would do that, Cole. Come on, that's exactly <laughs> right. what we would do. Uh, we're going to pollute as many planets as we can until we're just done. Uh, maybe so. Um, but but to me, it just seems, you know, cost-wise much more efficient. Uh, to use a circular economic model uh, in that context. And if you really look at what it takes to generate energy, get transported, uh, grow your food, recycle your waste, you know, you're really sort of encapsulating the human condition. If you want to survive on another planet with limited resources without persistent refilling. Yeah, I figure that's kind of where you're double back, doubling back to. So your styrofoam cups example is let's create our own styrofoam cups. And when they become trash, Let's recycle them and use them again as for something plates new. or so, forks or more cups. With that being said, you know, 3D printers aren't printing fiberglass. So, uh, Omolik, I'll throw this to you. You guys are interested in in printing, printing blades out of thermoplastic. A, why hasn't that been done yet? And why do you guys feel like that's the way going forward? Well, before I answer that, let me address your last question also, because you asked why on-site mobile manufacturing right so the the thing the key thing is there is a transportation problem right we can't transport these blades to these sites uh, the good wind sites uh, so you uh, 
because they keep getting larger and larger. Mm-hmm. A lot of sites get inaccessible. And uh, we've all seen pictures of, you know, these gigantic blades stuck on the mountain somewhere. <laughs> uh, so, so that's a real problem. And, uh, uh, you know, on-site manufacturing, there's been studies done by Department of Energy and even internationally in Europe, uh, specifically highlighting as mobile manufacturing as one of those potentially very large disruptive ideas mm-hmm. that unlocks uh, all of a sudden you can start to uh, continue to grow the size of the blades and uh, create more energy from a single turbine, which ultimately means the cost of wind continues to go down. And I would add that there's also this uh, new concept that's coming around, which is uh, the concept of modular blades, right? So that's actually another way to try to solve the same problem. Uh, but even there, uh, it, Ultimately, these blades are going to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You're still going to hit that same problem eventually. So mobile manufacturing has tremendous benefits. Uh, uh, So so that's just one thing I want to make sure everybody understands that. Yeah. And to touch on the modular, modular blade thing, I mean, Alan, you and I have talked about this. Those haven't, I mean, I think they're still relatively new, right? They are. And those yes. joints and those joints where the two piece blades come together, I don't know if there's data yet on how those fare ten years out. I, you know that the blade being 108 right. meters long now, that seems like something you want to avoid if at all possible, which would make the mobile manufacturing yeah. an, just another benefit. Where if, you know obviously right. the, the the least complexity we can have in any yeah. engineered object you know, the better. But we're also talking about sort of incremental costs and cost savings in the overall lifespan of a wind turbine. So part of, part of the capital cost you have when you manufacture wind turbine blades like you do right now is that you manufacture one, you put it in the parking lot, it sits there for six months, and then you ship it for three months, and then it gets installed. So that whole time from the yeah. time you purchase the material to the time it's actually producing energy is lost capital. Right. And and that that's an incremental cost you don't think about. But if you can eliminate those incremental costs of having products sitting out there doing nothing, not making you money, uh, and you can eliminate those, you can recapture some of that value back. And that's what the the mobile on-site manufacturing is is going to do. It's going to reduce the overall cost of the creating and operating a wind turbine. And that's why it's so important, because we need to get rid of those big structural costs we have built into the system right now. That is a fantastic point. That's a really good point. And then back to why thermoplastics, right? So uh, in terms of the technology, uh, there's a couple of challenges, right? Uh, you know, one is you kind of have to prove it out, right? So so the good news there is that the National Renewable Energy Lab uh, in the U.S. and Colorado, they've done some test blades at small scale, and they're proving out the materials. Uh, similarly, there's a large project planned in uh, in Europe to take that same uh, material set and, and then uh, uh, show a much larger blade uh, being produced with thermoplastics. Uh, so the, you know, the, the technology is maturing and now there's motivation. So we believe, you know, this will happen at least from the technical side. Uh, then if you look at it from the business side, uh, you have, uh, the the cost challenge okay uh thermoplastics a newer class of materials the volumes are not quite there yet right 
So naturally, they will be a little bit more expensive, right? So this is where now you have to get creative and figure out how you can support that uh, or justify that cost increase. And we think there are plenty of ways to do that. We, we've, uh, we're talking to potential partners and customers about that, how to actually, we think it will be same cost or lower. If you do things right and really think through the circular economy, this will actually be much lower cost. Uh, in the long term, and this is where you have to start talking about lifetime costs uh, of, of blades. And so we strongly, firmly believe in uh, circular economy, recyclable blades. We think that they will actually give you better performance, uh, uh, ultimately, better repairability, and uh, lower cost. Uh, because somebody has to pick up the cost of these things going into the landfills. Cole, I want to kick this to you. Um, so one thing you mentioned earlier, uh, as you're introducing yourself, you talked about fiber placement and the matrix in you know a 3D printed object. So, um, and we've also talked about in our in our uh, our, our pre-interview open chemistry. So can you talk about those two things and help someone? Uh, who maybe doesn't have you know the the deep scientific background understand what's the difference in fiber placement offered by 3d printing and what is the open chemistry benefit of using uh thermoplastic oh I, a fun set of questions i like it uh so so we have a couple of different um things going on uh, when when we look at the motion platform with which we are printing uh, this is uh, a huge constraint on what the fibers can look like at the at the end. So if you have an X, Y, Z, three axes by which you can move only, you're going to think about the objects you're going to build layer, a flat layer at a time, all the way up. If the nozzle can't tilt in any direction and you can only translate, you're going to start stacking layers all the way up. And those layers, they're going to want to split. This is one of the big problems with three axis 3d printing that you could be using lasers it doesn't really matter uh powder systems extrusion systems the motion mechanics are really defining a huge amount of your materials properties because they're defining where the layers are now if you're using a robot uh actually one of the things that we've done is uh we've actually gone all the way to uh 12 axis 3d printing where we actually have uh, a single object being held with one robot and then another Wait, robot. Do you, have to, do you have to take it into the matrix to do 12 axes? How many axes do you get here <laughs> just in our current? Um... Uh, no, it, it, uh, yes, uh, I live in a matrix. Um, we built our own operating system and all the text is green. Um, but no, it, 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 you know, if you, if you think about, you know, five axis printing just for a second, you, you, you're able to have X, Y, Z, but also tilt, tilt this way, tilt that way. Mm. Well, that's pretty good um, because now you can print on the wall. But the problem is you can't print on the ceiling because the motion mechanics are getting in the way. There's a limit to what a five-axis gantry can do. Now, if you have a robot, six-axis robot, which is not very different than your arm, you can print on the ceiling, you can print on the floor, you can print on the wall. So, So you can start to think about printing a tower and then starting to surface that tower. Well, now the layers floor by floor go up. 
but the wall can be made this way. Where's the layer mm, okay. now, right? So this, if you're gonna have a crack propagate this way, it's gonna hit a wall, literally. Perfect. Now you're starting to change the physics by changing the motion. Where we've gotten uh, at this point is actually uh, 12 axis 3D printing, where we have a, a small object held by one robot, and we have another robot with a continuous fiber placement, and we're able to completely wrap this thing much in the same way that a spider would wrap an insect. So if hmm. you think about fiber placement for one second, traditionally with aircraft, those massive objects are actually nearly two-dimensional. 2.1D, 2.3D, a cylinder is a flat sheet rolled up. A, the bottom surface of these wings is almost exactly flat. So the material that we're printing with when we're using tape, we're doing tape placement, uh, is, is not having to steer in 3D. So that, that actually does work. But if you want to wrap a bug like a spider would, actually you can't do that. You cannot take an automated fiber placement machine and wrap a ball. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You're going to get wrinkles or tears in those tapes. It's not mm -hmm. going to work. So we, we've had to solve a fiber uh, physics problem, a motion planning problem, which is a big box of math. And then, um, you know, you need to program these things, and that's an IT issue. So this is where you were talking about earlier how in the cloud, now all these different robots can collaborate. And so, like you said, one's holding an object and they're all working sort of like as a symphony together. Do I have it right? Sure. I mean, ideally, you should be able to have a big honking robot. You know, one of them prints the shell of a car and then four more come over, just like when you're watching welding, right? All these spot welders come out of nowhere. And zap, 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 zap. Mm -hmm. But why can't that be, you know, uh, 20 different fiber placement robots wrapping uh, the chassis of a car really quickly? Why not? No one hasn't, no one's really solved that, but it's fundamentally uh, IT and math. It's not physically impossible. So if you look at the turbine, right, you have a spark cap uh, where the carbon fiber is used and it's essentially flat, right? It's a flat surface uh, that is, uh, so, so people did try using fiber placement uh, and have used it uh it's just very expensive and they kind of uh, stop using it eventually but uh but you're making very primitive simple geometries it doesn't allow you more advanced organic shapes uh, right. that could be significantly more efficient right. right so so that's that's the key point here that with with the printing specifically uh, and and uh robotic printing uh, it gives us that freedom where we can start imagining novel architectures where you could really start thinking about optimizing in ways you could never do before. And then it ties back to your question about open chemistry. Uh, and that's a very important concept because, and this also relates back to thermosets versus thermoplastics. Thermosets, you know, once the material has been cured, you can't go back and do anything, which is why repairing uh, composites is such a difficult thing with thermosets. One of the beautiful things about thermoplastics is you can actually go back and then uh, open that chemistry again and repair. And so yeah. today's repair is, uh, you know, 
you stick a bandaid, right? You, you know, your blade has a problem, you stick a bandaid. Uh, uh, or you add some, you know, like you fix your wall, right? You add some plaster to it, but that's not really going to fix your problem, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of patchwork, right? But, but you know, in th- with thermoplastics, you can go back and really start to do some really nice repair work because you're not, you're working with the same chemistry on both sides. The repair patch could be thermoplastic, and you can actually be very thorough and accurate on how do you repair those things. So would this be, so like when I was in high school, I, I, I liked welding. I had a welder. I worked on my old old Bronco and some other, uh, um, my Jeep that I ended up flipping. Um, nice. But I liked working <laughs> with metal because I, if I mess something up, you know, I gouge it with a, you know, with a, a saw or, or grind too deep. I could just weld on and add back the material I lost and then grind it back down to shape. I felt like with metal, you know, I, I was always ahead of the curve. I could always fix whatever I screwed up. Whereas with wood, you're like, dang, I just took a cu- chunk out of that. There's no fixing this piece of mahogany. There's no fixing this piece of walnut. Is that is that a decent analogy for what essentially an old blade used to be compared to what a, a thermoplastic blade could be? I think that's perfect. And 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 when you when you use that analogy, of, you can you can extend a little bit further into what do robots do and how does advanced fiber placement as well as advanced sensors really help when you have the ability to to reinvigorate your chemistry. So as an example, look at the offshore wind blade issue. So we have these blades are designed for what, 20 year lifespan, something like that. The tips of these things are three, four, almost 500 miles an hour for 20 years. That's crazy. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's a lot. And so these things are spinning around. Well, the little pieces of water in the air it's like a tiny microscopic drill. It just goes right in between the fibers and explodes, right? I mean, in a hurricane, a typhoon, you see uh, the blades actually hit the water so hard, they for, they fluoresce. And you get these green spirals, these green helices that fly off of these things. It's amazing. But that's also plasma. That's going to eat your blade. Good luck. I don't care what you put on there. It's going to get eaten. So, you know, when we, when we think about it that way, uh, if we can actually take the robots that are capable of manufacturing these blade systems, and if they're small enough, if we can hoist them up the tower so we don't need to use people, and if the sensors uh, and the, the automated programming of these robots is advanced enough, if we're using the same tool by which we had built the blade to repair the blade on the tower, that open chemistry, advanced robotics, they enable you to have a blade that's the same as it used to be, you can have uh, a reinvigoration every year. Say, look, we know we're going to lose five millimeters of material every year. There's nothing you can do about it. It's plasma. You can't win. Fine. So then just have a plan to, you know, like an oil change. But also you could say, oh, you know, the wind conditions have changed because, you know, the seasons are different because, you know, the world is changing. So we can go ahead and change the, uh, the aerodynamic profile of the blade later on. You know, that's never been done. So, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't even have to demount the blade. This is why right. all this stuff coming together is, you know, quite a technical achievement. Yeah, well, and it also seems like, you know, we were just uh, chatting with the founder of Bladebug. Um, we've talked with uh, Nick Galdern uh, from Power Curve. You know, they do lots of um, uh, Power Curve upgrades, you know, vortex generators, uh, gurney flaps, stuff like that. It seems like all those things could be easily just printed right onto the blade where now they're a permanent fixture. They're not actually glued on they're not epoxied on but they're just 
essentially welded onto the blade. That seems to make a lot of sense. So why hasn't anyone, like, why has thermoplastic, I know you said it's still a new, you know, it's obviously 3D printing is still relatively new. I know it's been around for a while in its About current 40 form. Years. We had, uh, yeah. yeah, we had Henrik uh, Lund Nielsen, who's the, the founder of Cobot on here, and they're doing a very, um, a very similar work in just disrupting a lot of these industries, which they want to print wind turbine bases and um, potentially even foundations on site. So like all this stuff, this is this is clearly going that way. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what's what's the big holdup on thermoplastic and why do you feel like everyone's so dug in? I think one of the things is is a, a valid critique, um, but it, it can be technically broken apart uh, with a little bit more science. And that is 3D printing is slow. But where does that idea really come from? There's two places. One of them is I'm going to use one nozzle. So if I want to make a bigger thing in the same amount of time, I have to move that nozzle faster or I have to make the nozzle bigger. So that's one problem. So parallel robots is a solution to that. There is no massively parallel 3D printer. There are some metal printers that use multiple lasers, but that's about the edge of it. Now, the, the other way to look at this is, you know, a 3D printing is very slow chemically. So uh, as an example, you can't stuff clay into a sponge. 3D printing continuous fiber and thermoplastics is not what I would call easy. And doing that injection of a highly viscous material into the fibers that are just going to get blown out of the way by clay. I mean, because that's really what melted plastic feels like. Um, you have an issue there. So we've had to solve some chemistry challenges, fiber placement challenges, a lot, lot of small things to really change the fundamental science. But, you know, it, it's it's not easy. Yeah. So before we get to I, I want to talk about your Department of Energy grant and your partnership with the University of Maine. Um, but I have a question for Alan. So, Alan, obviously in the aerospace world, which it's you, you guys all have a, a crazy just like combination <laughs> of backgrounds. But, you know, you, you hear all the time that like Boeing is throwing three hundred million dollars into a hydrogen project or into an electric project. Like it seems like a lot of these big companies in aerospace and obviously like the work SpaceX is doing in Blue Origin and and NASA. There's so much like theoretical stuff that they're just putting money into for the future. But it doesn't seem like that same thing is happening in the wind industry, maybe it is in the background, right? They're very secretive. Um, but Alan, why do you feel like there's a, there seems to be a difference in how much money aerospace and space travel will put into like this sort of futuristic R and D and, and not so much on, on the wind side? Well, I think it comes about because of the, the push to make, uh, aircraft essentially less expensive to operate, right? So in the aircraft world, we've been doing it for for a hundred years, and so you have these systems in places and the and the knowledge and the engineers in place to try to minimize their overall costs. And so when you're designing an aircraft, you may choose a slightly more expensive product up front during the manufacturing side, knowing that the operational cost is going to go down. And those are the trade-offs that you make because you know that an aircraft generally is going to last you 20, 30, maybe 40 years. In the wind turbine side, a lot of it early on was trying to get less expensive material, try to get something out in the field and get it up and running. And that shift is starting to happen now, I think, in the wind turbine industry where the accountants and the people who are counting all the money to operate wind turbines are coming back to the OEMs and saying, hey, look, you're warranting our wind turbines for five years. After that, we're left on the hook with 15 years of maintenance and service. 
we don't want that anymore because the costs are so high. If we paid a little more for the wind turbine up front, we would save 15 years of, we do have 15 years or more, more money coming into our, our bank account. That's what we want. And the industry hasn't done that yet, but it will. Because as soon as we get some of these bigger players in the ownership groups like uh, the Berkshire Hathaways, right, the, the Warren Buffetts of the world playing, playing in the wind turbine market, that changes. So mm-hmm. the technology on the, thermal, on the, on the thermoplastics and, and moving away from thermal sets that we're, we're already doing in aerospace and been doing for about 10 years or so, it's going to also happen on the wind turbine market. It's just a little bit behind aerospace. You guys have a a Department of Energy grant, and you'll be collaborating with the University of Maine. And I know one of the big things, one of the big criteria from the Department of Energy um, in potentially, you know, figuring out how to uh, print uh, wind turbine blades is that they want a a 25% cost reduction. So can you talk a little bit more about this this grant and and your partnership with the University of Maine? Yeah, certainly. Um, Actually, it's uh, Oak Ridge National Labs as well. So it's a three-way partnership between Oak Ridge National Labs, uh, University of Maine, and Orbital Composites. Uh, you know, about back in 2018, uh, Cole and I sat down and we started talking about what are we going to do? How are we going to get into this industry? Uh, because it's a heavily consolidated industry, very hard to get in, right? So we made a strategic plan. Uh, we need to develop some key partners. And... Uh, we identified these two partners as are strategically the most critical partners that can really help us get this going. As you talked about, why isn't there more research in this area, right? Mm-hmm. There's yeah. many fundamental reasons, but we figured these two institutions are most well positioned to, to do that. Why? Oak Ridge uh, actually pioneered what's called BAM, Big Area Additive Manufacturing and has been really pushing that into the industry, uh, even so far as showing that you could use it to 3D print molds. Um, So a a natural partner, really excited about pushing this technology out. Uh, On the other hand, University of Maine is actually really special as well, because uh, uh, if you don't know, I would highly recommend getting Professor Habib on this uh, podcast, because he is, a quite a visionary. That guy's amazing. And he's been, yeah. And, and I'll explain how, because he's been at it for actually a, a large number of years. But what he's doing is the University of Maine itself is actually making the first offshore wind farm in the US, the university. Uh, they have the largest 3D printer in the world currently. Uh, they have a large, I think up to 70 meter wind blade testing facility. They are one of the most uh, foremost experts in what's known as uh, biopolymers, you know, uh, uh, materials, uh, cellulose type materials that, that could be recycled mm-hmm. over time. So, uh, and they have a, a, what's called a wave pool where you can actually simulate how uh, an offshore turbine could work. So really, a remarkable number of capabilities, literally in like two labs, which are right next to each other. It's just remarkable. So, and their vision of 
pushing printing into this into large scale, which nobody really kind of stood up and said, yes, let's do it. University of Maine said, you know what, let's do it. So, uh, so we approached, we started working with both Oak Ridge and Professor Habib and his team at University of Maine and really aligned on our vision that we all agree this is the right direction to go. And, uh, and the current printers uh, do not have continuous fiber printing capability. That's one problem we need to solve. Second is the current printers are very rigid. We want to mobilize that. Uh, and, and, and so uh, you have robots coming in. Robots has many advantages, uh, you know, the, the fidelity, but also the mobility aspect and the aspect of paralyzing printing. So what we're doing uh, in this particular project uh, uh, with the DOE grant is DOE posed a challenge. You need to show 25% cost reduction. Uh, how do you achieve it? You can do it in different ways. You could uh, kind of, you know, uh, start 3D printing the molds. That's that's one kind of low-hanging fruit, uh, uh, which has many advantages, of both from a cost perspective potentially, uh, but also from time to market. Uh, and as Alan talked about the the cash flow problem, right? You could actually print them much faster easier, you know, better use of cash. Um, so that's one way. You also have uh, another way where could we use additive manufacturing in a compelling way uh, where you can cut weight out of your blade design. So the design aspect of additive, right? And the third is how do you make additive competitive? You know, like as Cole talked about, you know, you you have to remember, we have to still compete with the traditional, the current method as methods of blade manufacturing. Uh, there are two dominant costs in, in blade. Number one is materials. So you have to address that. Uh, you have to use lowest cost materials possible. Uh, and anywhere you can cut waste and save material, that's a benefit, right? So additive by nature is an additive process, meaning you, you will reduce material waste. It's not a subtractive process. Um, so there's some opportunity there. But then I think, to be honest, the bigger opportunity is taking advantage of the ability of AM, additive manufacturing, and deposit uh, material and fiber exactly where you want, rather than kind of splitting it all over the place and optimize the designs and cut weight. So UMaine already has a large printer. They're going to make the molds for us. Uh, uh, we're going to uh, uh, have this large, a uh, very disruptive printer system uh, with very high speeds and very large scale capability, which will be developed uh, by Orbital and then installed at Oak Ridge National Labs. Uh, which they have a very large facility uh, where we will then demonstrate, we'll get the molds from University of Maine, we'll print the blades, we'll print a large number of them, but because we want to do many different trials and demonstrate various different types of capabilities with the new printing process, uh, demonstrate speed, demonstrate ability to put material in different places, demonstrate recyclability. 
mm. all in one shot. And where does the mold come in? So if you're printing the blades, where, where does the mold come into that whole manufacturing process? Uh, we are, so uh, this is it. Uh, we are still using the traditional mold system and we're depositing the material uh, on top of the mold. Uh, gotcha. in, and this is the best way to strike that balance between uh, you need very high speeds and these structures are also insanely heavy. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of, again, uh, as we always say, right, uh, you don't do additive just for the hell of it. Uh, <laughs> a lot of practically, uh, you end up, when you really think through a lot of these production systems, you have to think about the end product and their requirements. And many times it, it's these hybrid processes that are the most effective where you exploit right. the benefits of additive, uh, but take advantage of other benefits from traditional processes, right? So so the yeah. mold is is necessary for that reason. Uh, we wanna hit those very fast cycle times uh, and be able to get, uh, you know, cranking out blades like there's no tomorrow. Well, that's, that's good. That was really helpful because I feel like as I'm going through this, having not seen your process exactly like take, you know, take, take uh, shape, I, I'm just in my head imagining that this blade is sort of just growing out of the air. That's not really the way it's going to happen. You're going to use the molds and you're going to use a combination of current technologies to find the most sensible solution. I know Al and I have talked a bunch about that, how, you know, we've been talking about the EVTOL sector a lot in our other podcast and just how the most successful companies are probably going to be the ones that you reuse a lot of just proven technology combined with some new technology rather than just try to reinvent everything under the sun all at once which is really really hard so that makes more sense to me conceptually i'm sure it does a lot for our, our listeners as well you know we're able to uh very precisely control where each fiber is going and even in the actual aerospace industry they rarely do that especially in commercial aerospace they're going ah you know no it's 90 and 45 and 135 and, and 180 and that's all you get and you talk about the carbon the fiber, fiber placement yeah mm -hmm. well even even if it's even if it's tape placement it's still you know 45 degrees or nothing uh there's there's not a lot of curvature going on tapes doesn't don't do that but you know even if you look at uh traditional wind turbine uh blades they're basically like people rolling out big woven mats well, if you think about it, you're weaving a sheet together. Now, even if we forget trimming the edge of that sheet, because it's going to be a rectangle, but even, even thinking about the fact that half the fibers are going the direction you don't want. Right. And so we're, we're saying, you're going to take those fibers, you're going to put them exactly where they need to go. So when you think about it, you know, uh, an aircraft might have what we would call 20% embodied waste, which means because the fibers are pre-woven, or because you're limited by the number of angles you're going to pick, you're building fiber orientation that's non-optimal. The optimal right. thing, you already know what it looks like, it's a leaf. Those fibers need to be branching right. and they need to be spreading out like just like this as they go up the blade. That's natural. Right. We're anywhere, we're not even close to that. So this, this single fiber placement at you know rapid speed, every fiber has its own history, all that history is recorded. And if there's a mistake, the printer will fix that problem automatically that's really right. what you need to be able to have something that enables you to have potentially unique blades made in the field one off 
for this tower born certified. It's a very big challenge to do that with individual fiber placement, but you look at the savings of the embodied waste, you could potentially also then look at the savings of a lower cut-in speed or better optimization for this wind regime. Mm. So correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you could probably reduce weight of the blade if you don't a need lot. as much material because the fibers are so much more effective going, like you said, the directions that they the ideally direction. would go under perfect conditions. Yeah, and changing those fibers. You know, you have high performance carbons over here, low performance glasses over there where it makes sense. Because some parts of a wind turbine blade, you just need something that acts like concrete. And at the tip of the blade, you need something that's a helicopter blade. <laughs> There's mm -hmm. a big difference in those physics. So you need to have your materials uh, be produced in that fashion. It's not just fiberglass. No, that so, makes a lot of sense. And you could change it over time. Cool. And so the, is the thought process then in terms of the sort of robotics of fiber placement in a 3D fashion, dry fiber and then applying the thermoplastic or thermoset, I guess you could, to the to the fiber as it's extruded. It's like it's all one in the nozzle situation. So you're actually buying cheaper non-prepreg fiber and then a, your own separate resin system, whatever that is, and you're you're right right before it's applied to the product, you're putting those two together and laying the bundle down, not a tape down, but a, but a bundle. Yeah, right at the last second. Because you think about the machines that actually make prepreg and they make tapes, they could be four stories tall and 400 feet long. They run at 100 miles an hour. That's not cheap. Right. And you right. and then you have another step in the process. You think about weaving, then that's another step in the process. Well, how about you just take the spools from the spool factory and you stuff those into a printer? Right. In the field, you're taking steps right. and steps and steps and steps out of it. That's the key. Right, exactly. Freezers, expired material, all the lost waste and costs that are associated with all those, all the transport issues go away. If you're taking dry fiber and taking a resin or thermal uh, plastic material, uh, which are the cheapest forms of both of those things, and then exactly. bang, it, bang them into a composite material at the last second, yes, I think you've then honed in on the true lowest cost option and obviously the, the versatility of how to place those fibers explodes the engineering possibilities in terms of what you can design and what you will design because you finally can't control it and know that it went down. And one of the issues with uh, handmade hand placement of, of fabrics uh, versus the ta automated tape system was when we switched from hand placement of fiber uh, of, of cloth was we weren't always sure that we put the right amount of cloth down. So we always put more in. Right, so we added weight because of the human factor. We went to tape placement. We could eliminate some of that. When you're going to this level now, you'll know where every fiber is and what the resin content is when it goes down, and you have a record of it. For every every part that's manufactured has basically a quality statement that comes with it. Like we know exactly what's going on with that product because we recorded it as we did it. That's amazing. That is truly amazing, and that's groundbreaking, and, and that's why I'm so excited as you get into doing this effort that the the output of this is going to be tremendous. It's just going to be tremendous. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. And you know, we've we've worked a long long and hard to be able to produce a robotic system that meets all the requirements for Industry 4.0, which you just linked together very well. Um, and you know, also if you think about it, you know, a lot of these blade systems are made by hand. Also on the resin side, it's not all vacuum fusion. There's adhesives, right. there's other things. So you're looking at blades that could be, you know, plus minus uh, 100 kilos or more. 
So, you know, if we have the ability to titrate our chemistry very precisely using robotics, using our machine learning and so on, then you're looking at the ability to have blades that when they're produced under the tower for that tower the first time are matched within a kilogram or so. Right. As opposed to I've produced, you know, 50, 100 blades of this model, and then I just pick the ones that are less than 50 kilograms uh, off from one another, and that's a matched set. Right, right. Well, what if you have the ugly duck? Garbage. Yeah, it sits in the parking lot. That's what it happens. Yeah. yeah. The point, Alan, you made earlier about, again, the, all these blades sitting around, you can't ship them until you find a matched pair, right? Right. <laughs> so, these right. problems just perpetuate, right? You, you've got, so there's so much room for improvement here. Uh, and there's one thing I want to add going, there was a question around um, the, the business model and, and why people are not making this change to thermoplastics, right? Uh, I, I think there's, there's some structural, I think, challenges in the industry because the blade guys their business model is selling blades and as many as they can. Uh, and it turns out they're making plenty of money uh, fixing them, uh, becoming a big part of their business and very profitable. So I think the, the, the motivations of the industries are, are not well aligned. Whereas from, if you look at it from the operator side, of course they want long life, right? Uh, they don't want to repower the the wind farm they just made five years later, right? So mm -hmm. there's some fundamental tension here in the industry, uh, and I I feel like there is also opportunities to rethink the whole business model. And yeah. and, and 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 really, uh, I think uh, a new crop of uh, blade companies should really think about this in fundamentally different ways of how do you truly become partners with the operators and be incentivized in a way in the business model where you are motivated to make blades that actually last. Uh, and uh, maybe there's a servicing model which is different. Uh, you know, you have, uh, uh, there's options here, but my, I'm just pointing out the way the industry is set up <laughs> is part of the problem. Yeah, and it's that's a similar thing with electronics, right? I mean, there's battles for right to repair in electronics. You know, companies are fighting with Apple. You know, the reason I'm recording on a Mac or a Windows laptop is because it saved me fifteen hundred dollars because I could put in my own hard drive, my own. Um, you know, I, I I could add more RAM to it. Whereas if I buy an Apple computer, guess what? It's gonna be soldered in there. I can never upgrade it, and I'm I'm I've got to choose right when I buy it what i what i want the specs to be and that's frustrating it doesn't let you grow with it and the right to repair thing is gonna that's gonna be i think a big congressional fight coming up soon because there's a lot of people who say look i own this product i want to be able to fix it i want to be able to upgrade it if i have the tools to do so and companies shouldn't be allowed to you know prevent me from doing so and that's of course not what we're talking about here exactly but we're talking about the built-in obsolescence to a degree like you yes. said blade companies want to sell another blade in five years if they can not 20 years from now, if you make something too, too well, too robust, you don't get to sell anymore. Let's transition. I want to talk about recycling, which is obviously another big benefit of thermoplastic. 
Um, and like you mentioned earlier, you alluded to the you know Bloomberg article where there's decommissioned blades in Illinois. We saw that and we talked about it on a, an episode back in the summer. You know, you see these graveyards of wind turbine blades and they can't really go anywhere. It's really hard to chew them up because, you know, what what grinder can even take one of those into it? It just seems like s- such a difficult problem. How uh, how would 3D printing and, and thermoplastic change the, the scope of recyclability? You know, back in the 90s here in Silicon Valley, there was a wave of investment that ultimately became a popped bubble. And and that bubble was called green tech. So so back then there were uh, a gamut of companies that sprang up and they were going to save the world. They were going to give us cleaner water, cleaner air, and, and you know, cut pollution, recycle things. But basically all of those technologies that were being offered at the time didn't meet scale economics or they couldn't meet the dollars per pound or the dollars per kilowatt hour. They were fundamentally worse than uh, everything that came before them uh, in, in the traditional manufacturing or energetic economies. And so, so when you think about doing a startup today, um, you know, one of the things is that you need to go for, uh, as Peter Thiel would say, a step function. You need to go from zero to one. You need to be 10 times better than everything else. You can't just go into Main Street and put up another, you know, uh, $20 a plate restaurant and just beat them on looks alone. You're going to get tired. You know, you can't win that way. So when we think about what can we do? Why do we need recycling? Why do we need mobility? It enables you to get to places you could never go before. That's your step function. The blades get longer. They couldn't be that long. The rotor blades get new shapes that you couldn't have before. And ultimately you stop buying material as your company continues to grow, you know, uh, or you buy much, much less material because it's a concave down function. So all those things can combine to give you a company that's, you know, 10 times more efficient. And when you look at the operating margins on a lot of the the wind turbine uh, companies, they're very tight. It's unfortunate. But, you know, I think that's one of the other things that limits their technological progress and their appetite for risk. They don't have, you know, 150, 300 billion dollars of government money to go try making some new aircraft that may or may not make it. But we're going to learn something if they have towers blowing up, they get in big trouble. So, you know, you know, that that's, you know, why we're here to take that risk and to uh, really then push the the green uh, technologies uh, using these digital transformations. I basically like to hear you guys sum up sort of like what you feel like your end product package is. So say like I'm a wind site operator in, in the future. Um, and I say, hey, this sounds great. Sign me up. Our wind site, we want to use, you know, your manufacturing. What does that then look like? Um, you guys truck your container with your micro factory in it. But it's kind of like take me start start to finish what you feel like that looks like when you guys get to that to that point. Yeah, I mean, this would be a great time to take a look at the video that we'll go ahead and attach. And so, you know, in the video, here's what we're looking at. We've got uh, a wind turbine uh, field, uh, our location of interest. We're going to truck in uh, shipping containers. By the way, shipping containers, 40 foot shipping container, that's about a dollar a mile. It's it's a very, very low cost. Uh, Whereas look at those specialized trucks to move 55 or 60 meter wind turbine. Not a dollar a mile. And they don't go through the international uh, network. They don't go overseas, right? And uh, okay, so so we we have uh, then at the base of these towers a a factory that that's basically a series of uh, like a bunch of jack in the boxes. Right? So you have the shipping containers are stacked. The robots jump out of the boxes. They all meet in the middle, and then that's where they can print the mold. 
assemble the mold uh, and then go ahead and, and do the fiber placement operations uh, and, and finish the blade. So, so that sort of mobile system is, is really the long-term vision. And then the cool part is, you know, it works for different blades of different sizes. There's plenty of blades out there that are uh, out of date, obsolete, uh, old wind turbine fields, loaner turbines where the manufacturer is no longer in operation. So um, those are the, the places where we can help in the early game. And then when you look at the, uh, the late game, you know, our, our vision is to have, you know, a full size uh, shipping container vessel. We can move our factory anywhere in the world. It's just a bunch of trucks after all. Uh, and then produce the blade that you need right under that tower. I think that all makes sense, right? So South Korea is in a big push right now to create offshore wind turbines, and they have a, a large manufacturing base to make ships. Those two go together. Clearly, there's going to be an effort to start making wind turbine components on ships near the site where they're going to be placed. All that makes sense. And I think finally we're going to get to the economics of the the, the full lifetime economics of where where and when you're making your money. You know, you like to recover your early investment as early as you can, but the remaining part of that time, you just like to be making cash flow, right? Yet your, your repairs are minimal, but your influx of cash is high. There's, there's your ideal spot to be. And until we sort of rethink the whole life cycle, including uh, all the bonds we put up to decommission wind turbines and the cost of that and the cost to recycle all this stuff, then we're not really getting a true measure of how much it costs to operate a wind turbine. This is going to change because of the opportunities like orbital composites is going to bring, which can change that economic model. And once you start changing the economic model, the accountants will start to pay attention and the investors will start to pay attention and force it. It will no longer be an engineering decision, like in a lot of cases. It'll end up being an accounting investor decision of where they're going because they're putting up the cash, not the engineers. And that's when large-scale changes will happen. That's when it's going to occur. So it's coming. It's just on the precipice of it. Next couple of years can be really important about when that transition happens. Well, guys, um, we really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, where can our listeners follow up with you both and with Orbital? Yeah, we definitely would recommend your your viewers check out orbitalcomposites.com. There are many links uh, on there to the different podcasts or uh, webinars and things. We actually do give a lot of talks to the composites industry and beyond. Uh, definitely worth checking out, I think. It's not all about our stuff. We talk more generally about the future of carbon fiber and energy technologies, other things. Um, and then sign up for our newsletter. Um, you know, tap that subscribe button. And, uh, you know, uh, take a look because we've got a lot of interesting things coming at you. It's fun. And uh, my contact is same, just first name, both for me and Cole, first name at orbitalcomposites.com. All right. So for all of you listening, definitely check out the links in the description below, whether you're on YouTube or in podcast land. And you'll be able to uh, click right through to Orbital Composites website. And we'll also link to wherever you can find them both on LinkedIn um as well so thank you again guys for coming on this is a really great conversation we appreciate you yeah thank you very thank much you. thank you for having let's, us let's give a quiz to the readers how many miniature wind turbines were in this podcast <laughs> <laughs> all right well that's going to do it for the uptime podcast today be sure again to check out the links in the description below where you can learn more about orbital composites and again thank you to our guests amola Fidesha and cole nielsen again 
we appreciate you listening or watching here. We're on all podcast platforms and YouTube. So be sure to subscribe to the show, share it with a friend, and we will see you here next week on the Uptime Podcast. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.